On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about the idea that was reported that GO stations for GO trains and such are going to be now possibly charging for parking, which seems just like an absolutely boneheaded move. If we are trying to get more and more people to use public transit, which seems to be the idea, why are we then going to raise prices and make it more difficult and more challenging and less incentivizing public transit? Whoever came up with this one, we'll talk about it, but whoever came up with this one, back to the drawing board. Uh, We're also going to chat about doctor-assisted suicide, a a far more serious topic, especially because there is now talk going on that we're potentially going to move from people who have a terminal illness that the end of life is within sight and they simply want to hasten that to people who have depression, mental illness, and possibly even children. Is this really an area, a, a path that we want to go down because it seems like it is fraught with all kinds of ethical and human problems. And finally, we're going to be chatting about music. Uh, It's 2020. We love free stuff. We seem to believe in a lot of ways that we're entitled to free stuff, and that includes finding music online that's free. How does the music industry make it work when people don't really want to pay a lot of money for music, but it costs money to make and produce and market music? We'll explain. Stay tuned. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. For the next few minutes, we want to talk about bad ideas. Bad ideas. We've all had them. We've all regretted them. But nobody ever sets out to, I don't think, have a bad idea and then say, you know what? That's a terrible idea. I think I'm going to do it. Usually, people, when they realize either because it's dawned on them or because people around them have told them that something is a bad idea, they, they step back and they have sober second thought and they, they say, hmm, bad idea. Maybe I shouldn't blindfold myself and run across the highway. Maybe I shouldn't belly flop off the 60 foot bridge onto the water below. Maybe I shouldn't pick your thing. But sometimes you don't even need someone to tell you that something is a bad idea. And that's where we are right now because the story is out today. Globe and Mail broke this story this morning that Metrolinx, which boy, does it not seem in this city like whenever we're talking about a story that is causing problems, somehow Metrolinx seems to be a part of it? I don't know. Anyway, uh, Metrolinx is saying, and they operate Go, uh, they're saying that, you know, there's an internal document that they're going to have a massive shift to paid parking at Go stations. Because right now, because we want people to use public transit, at least that's the big push that we keep hearing, this whole LRT discussion, public transit discussion, the fact that we want Go trains to go from Toronto to Hamilton and back and forth all day, public transit We want cars off the road, all that kind of stuff. All we hear about these days, public transit, they want to now put in place, this internal document shows that the the Globe and Mail has got, paid parking at all the GO stations. So that not only are you going to pay $25, $26 return to get to Toronto, but now you're going to pay for parking as well. Nobody has thought that maybe this is a deterrent and that maybe as we get the dollars up high enough 
that it just becomes more convenient and easier to just take your car to Toronto instead? I mean, look, Go is fine, but I think most people, if the cost was the same or almost the same, I think a lot of people would say, you know what? My car is more comfortable. I got my music on. I got my coffee sitting beside me. I got some leg room. Maybe I got my friend with me. I know there's traffic, but eh, if it's basically the same, it's probably more comfortable. What we're trying to do seemingly is create situations where public transit seems more appealing. It's faster. It's more comfortable. It's cheaper. Well, according to these memos, of the 77,000, I think it's 77,000 public right now free parking spots, over 70,000 anyway, uh, many of them are being identified possibly, probably as spots where we're now going to charge you. And they say they're going to work this in at a slow pace, blah, blah, blah. You know what? The minute they, and right now they do have some reserve spots, but you start putting in hundreds and hundreds and thousands of these, they're not, you know what, when you taste, when you taste a little bit of the public money, you don't slow down. Show me a political party that has, well, there's not many, they try sometimes, but it says, you know what, we're bringing in X dollars. I think we could do with a lot less. I don't want all this money. Once the money is coming, nobody ever says, ah, that's enough of that. Let's back up a bit. It's just, it's rare. And so we've got this idea that we want people to take the GO train because it's going to take cars off the road and it's going to alleviate pollution and it's going to be better for the environment and on and on and on. And here we have the company that's running this thing saying, great idea, let's gouge people a little more because 26 bucks back and forth to Toronto isn't enough. 26 bucks, I mean... 26 bucks is 26 bucks. You do that a few times. It's not insignificant money. It's not. This is not like taking an HSR trip where you go, okay, well, it's three bucks or four bucks or whatever it is now. You know, okay, I can do that. $26. And I know parking can be very expensive in certain parts of Toronto, but I'm sure you could find a spot somewhere that you start adding parking to your go train trip. The difference between driving to Toronto and go training it to Toronto, not that different. So we're going to take a break in just a second. And I want to hear from you because I'm assuming some of you take the go train and some of you have significant chunks out of your monthly budget taken up with transportation. You okay with this? I mean, on the one side, you could argue, well, fewer people are going to be parking there. So I can probably get a parking spot now if I pay for it. Not going to have to worry about that. So, okay, there's the positive. But the reason that there are going to be fewer people and fewer cars is because fewer people are going to be taking public transit then, which seems to defeat the purpose of everything we are apparently trying to do in our society. Would you be okay with paying for parking at Go? Or do you say, no, if we're encouraging saving the environment and getting people out of their cars and all the rest, we must make it so that it's attractive and appealing and appetizing for everybody. I want to hear from you. They also say, here's a, a quote from the, Go, uh, the Globe and Mail story. Uh, they stressed that parking changes would be coupled with efforts to encourage other ways of getting to go stations. We want to do this carefully because we know it's a sensitive issue with customers and neighbors and municipalities. Uh, that's nice. So explain to me how exactly someone in Hamilton gets to the Aldershot go station to pick up the train. 
Just, uh, I'm, I'm happy to listen. Yeah, okay. Maybe you take an Uber or you take a bus that takes half an hour or 45 minutes. Like, we're deterring people, not encouraging people. But maybe that's just me. What do you think? Is this a brilliant idea? Because now it brings in a little more money and it maybe encourages people to take a bus to the go station as opposed to driving their car. What do you think? Al is up first today. Al, how are you? I'm all right, Scott. What do you think about this? Well, I'd be okay with it as long as they reduce the fare prices. Ah, good luck. (laughs) Good luck. No, that's not going to happen. And I, I, I am wondering to myself which I think is probably an obvious, is whether this is just a way to bring in more revenue. And I think that probably seems rather obvious that, you know, they'll say, well, this is to make sure that people can get a parking spot because they're always very crowded. Uh, if that's the case, why not just have like a, a an app that says, hey, that parking lot is full at this time and you don't have to drive here then. Like something, they could do something else. Yeah, I, if it is revenue neutral, then I could see the environmental uh, impacts as well as, uh, yeah, the, the parking lot, uh, being less used for sure. Look, it it would be very simple, as I say, to create an app that just says our parking lot is full. Don't drive here. And if you're worried about cars that are just driving around and idling and everything else, then that's a way to do it. So people know they don't have to come if if that's how you want to do it. I, I, I just don't believe that it's anything more than a cash grab from you and I and everyone else who uses go. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm growing a little naive in my old age, I guess. <laughs> Al, I appreciate the call. Thank you very much. Have a great Thanks. night. Let me go to Joel. Joel is up. Joel, how are you tonight? I'm doing good, but uh, this news is really fascinating us because this is not fair. You know what they should do? They should take our money when we get the money, paycheck, a direct deposit. City should take all our money. We don't have to do any responsibility. They just run our life. That's what they're looking at. They're taking all our money, so there's no money left. Joel, you're you're only probably a year or two ahead of your time. That's coming. Believe me, that's coming. Um, but no, you look. You're right, and and it's just another example of finding ways to take money away from us, while at the same time wanting us to use the service that they're going to charge more and more for. If they want us to use this, Joel, make it yeah. cheaper, not more expensive. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I'm with, it, with you on that one. Joel, thank you so much for the call. I really appreciate it. Uh, but again, let me let me go back to this for a second, because I think this is just an absolutely boneheaded idea. I really do. I think this is like ridiculous to the point of nonsensical, because we're trying hard to get people to use public transit. That's We have spent more time in the city of Hamilton talking about public transit than probably anything else in the last five years. City Council has blown through more hot air discussing public transit than anything else. And now we're going to do something that is going to make it more difficult, more unlikely, more disincentivizing for people to use public transit. What's the point? What's the thought process here? And I know they're going to say again, well, the lots are very full and this can keep some cars away and we can get people to take other modes of transportation we're struggling in this city. The whole fight or one of the whole fights about the LRT from the mountain people and the suburbs people and everything else is, okay, you can build an LRT. How does that help transit around the rest of the city? And the answer always is, well, we'll work on that. So now we don't have an LRT. We don't know what we're going to do, but you're saying, well, maybe you could take public transit 
to the go station. This has been the root of a whole lot of the frustration from a lot of people in Flamborough and Dundas and Stony Creek and Ancaster in the mountain. The bus system is not reliable or current or rel- or c- comes around often enough that if I want to get from Dundas to the Aldershot go station by public transit, I'm going to need a three-day head start and a Sherpa guide to get there. It's going to take me forever. I'm going to have to take three changes of clothes and a cooler full of food just to survive that trip. It's not convenient. But, but you know, as, as we see day after day, sometimes the argument for a clean environment or helping people, it's, it's not always thought through as well as could be. There was, did you see the thing that last week there was a protest in downtown Hamilton where environmental protesters were blocking the street downtown holding up traffic to make their point because nothing says fight for the environment, like causing a whole lot of cars to idle in the streets. I mean, this, this is the same kind of thinking. We're going to help the environment by hurting the environment. We're going to deter you from doing what is right, what is best so that we can make a point about what's best. Come on, people, Metrolinks, call a little meeting. Take your little report and say, that was a nice idea, Bob, or whoever wrote it. Now, come up with something better, because this is stupid. Don't do this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a discussion that has now begun on Parliament Hill about whether or not to allow for a broader definition than the current group of allowable causes for doctor-assisted suicide. Right now, there are a number of criteria, but the simplest way of saying it is right now you must be facing imminent natural death from an incurable condition. If you are on the road to death, you can seek doctor-assisted, physician-assisted suicide. Well, now the discussion that's broadening is that some proponents want people with mental health issues, depression, for example, to be allowed to use physicians to commit suicide, as well as some mature children to make that decision. And I don't think there should be any surprise that this is now up for discussion. Many people, including myself on this show many, many times back when this was coming into law, said you don't open Pandora's box just a little. Once you allow physician-assisted suicide for some things, it's inevitable that there will be calls for it to become broader and broader and for more and more things to be caught up under that umbrella. And here we are. And the problem with this is, or the challenge or whatever word you want to use is if the initial discussion, if the initial argument was fraught with complications, this next step seems to be just an absolute field of landmines, ethical landmines. Well, that makes my next guest perfect for this discussion. Dr. Lisa Schwartz is the Arnold L. Johnson Chair in Healthcare Ethics. She's a professor in the Department of Health Research Methods at McMaster, where she developed the ethics and moral reasoning stream of professional competencies for the undergraduate medical education program. She joins us now. Dr. Schwartz, thanks for doing this today. Hi there. Thanks for inviting me. Well, you're more than welcome. And I don't know if you agree, um, but it seems to me that there was never a chance that once this door was opened, it was going to become less complicated over time. It was always, when you do this, when you start something like this, is it not fair to say these things always become more complicated? 
Yeah, you're probably right about that, and particularly within a, a healthcare system that offers lots of complex um, care opportunities for people, and we're sustaining lives. We've got resources to do all sorts of things, um, and it definitely reflects what we've seen in other countries who are years ahead of us in offering something like medical assistance and dying. Um, these these complications, as you say, these new sorts of cases have come up and they've been addressing the same questions. And and healthcare, I mean, this is the truly difficult part because there's other areas where ethics come into play, but they're not necessarily life and death. This is a literal life and death decision. I mean, we can use other examples in the healthcare or the medical field, you know, genetic manipulation when we found out that we could clone people. Well, okay, what's the ethics around that? Once you've done it, you now have to discuss where the line is. Drug use, you know, we legalized cannabis and now some people say, well, we should legalize all forms of drugs. As soon as you open the door, it's always going to lead to further and further questions. Yeah, but I guess that's part of our nature, isn't it? And that's the the wonderful thing about it. Actually, I I would begin by saying that I am so pleased that the uh, Ministry of Justice has opened this countrywide consultation. Um, I think this is a wonderful opportunity for Canadians to weigh in, to you know express their their considerations, their concerns, their hopes and wishes. Um, and doing this on a national level is something that we should be applauding. The tricky part about this, I would see, is that you you can have, I think, a reasonable debate with someone on either side about, okay, I've got terminal cancer and before it becomes intolerable pain, I wish to end my suffering. And I think there are people on both sides who can argue that for or against. But when you get into something, and there's two top, two issues here that I want to go through with you. One of them is when it comes to depression and mental illness, because suicidal impulses can sometimes be, and maybe often, be a symptom of depression. So if you can treat that case, that symptom that may have caused you to want to commit suicide goes away. Uh, that's, that's a difficult thing to reconcile, to say that this is a treatable, in many, many, many cases, a treatable illness that doesn't necessarily automatically lead to death. Yeah, you're right about that. Um, you know, just generally, I think it's hard for us to make good decisions or wise decisions for our future selves. You know, we can make choices, you know, for our future selves in some respects, but when we don't really have an insight or, you know, if that insight is clouded by something like a mental health problem, um, then it's it's difficult to make those best choices. You know, the good thing about it is that even under the current legislation, um, there are safeguards, and those safeguards have been put into place from the very beginning, um, and they will remain. Uh, the question is, you know, how flexible should the safeguards be? So right now it takes, you know, two um, clinicians, two healthcare providers to weigh in and determine whether or not this is really, um, the, you know, the kind of irremediable suffering and the kind of choice that can't be managed. And the first thing that all health professionals need to do and will do, and I think what we should be expanding on, is remedying the problems or the obstacles that would lead a person to make, um, a, you know, an inadvisable choice that would, you know, effectively preclude any future choices that they might have. So safeguards are a big consideration, and and they will be in place. Am I not correct, however, though, that when this law came into play, one of the things that was said to assuage the concerns of a lot of people was depression, 
mental health and children would never be part of the discussion. I, I, I clearly remember that being something that was said to make sure that people weren't panicking about this. Um, so I think they, they addressed that issue. I wouldn't have said that anybody made a, a clear and unequivocal um, statement against it. And if they did, I guess that was probably um, you know, maybe a, a bit of misspeaking. Okay, okay. Um, because really intentionally, my impression of it anyway, was that with what the justices um, you know, suggested in 2015 at the time when C-14 was introduced, um, was was that those difficult cases would be considered um, at a future time, like now, um, when it was uh, already established where we started to have those safety mechanisms, where we began to see that um, medical assistance in dying was something that could function um, without too much difficulty. And then I think it was just a matter of time that these particular questions came up. Here's where I want to go next, Doctor, to the idea of mature children, which is, to me, such an incredibly thorny issue because we don't let children vote because we don't feel they are old enough, mature enough to do that. We don't let them drive until a certain age. We don't let them drink. And yet we could potentially be saying, but you're old enough to make a decision to end your life. That to me seems just so fraught with difficulties. It's a really delicate area, there's no doubt. And it would not be something that anybody would want to go into without proper safeguards, particularly for the child making the decision, because this is a difficult decision even for you know adults of advanced ages and you know with all the wisdom and education they need. But a child would need to be well supported to make sure that they're making the choice for their own you know reasons um, and not feeling pressured or in any way you know a sense that they have to do this in order to. Um, you know, stop the suffering of their families or, or, you know, alleviate costs or anything like that. So we'd have to be pretty careful about it. Um, but, you know, I think the, the whole thing sort of hinges on what was at the heart of the justices ruling initially back in 2015, um, where, you know, they indicated that, or they, you know, they said that the, the prohibition um, against uh, medically assisted deaths um, deprives individuals of their freedoms and of their rights to make decisions about themselves and to live their lives and end, and end their lives in the way that matches you know, their values and their intentions. And if we're focused on you know irremediable suffering in adults and we're permitting this for adults, I guess the question inevitably would arise: Why not for children as well? Well, and I agree. And I said, uh, you know, months and months and years ago when this came in, I said that and I had people come saying, no, 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 they'll never do it with kids. Well, again, we, I mean, we know we've been talking uh, on this show with Dr. James McKillop, who, who studies marijuana cannabis at McMaster about children's brains, especially young boys, their, their frontal lobe hasn't developed. Like the decision making is not there yet. So it becomes very difficult to say if I'm a 17 year old, even if some doctor determines that I'm very mature, what is mature? I mean, that's a subjective term. What is a mature child and who determines that? Yeah, really good question. Um, and, and one that we struggle with anyway, because 
at the moment, particularly here in Ontario, there is no um, age of capacity or age of decision making um, for children. Like, you know, we have children are allowed to, or people aren't allowed to, to vote until they're 18 years old and not allowed to drink till a specific age. But when it comes to decision making about health care, there is no specific age. And we leave it to the system, and that includes healthcare providers and family members and whatnot, to um, determine whether or not a child can make a decision for themselves. And we have, you know, probably on a daily basis, uh, children making choices for themselves when it comes to healthcare. And those choices can include things like refusal of even life sustaining or life saving treatments. So, you know, we've seen children can refuse, you know, even cancer treatments. We can see that, you know, children might be able to refuse um, even life-sustaining treatments of other sorts. So if we're giving them those choices already and we seem to be managing to do that in, you know, more or less respectful ways, you know, now and again, it's challenging. But if we're able to do it for that, um, why not do it for medically assisted death as well? The other thing, there's a there's so many other things. I wish we had about three hours to do this, cause yeah. I, the, but we got to do it quickly. But the, one other yeah. thing that leaps to mind with this is when this law was first passed, and again, the, the suggestion was, okay, this is for people who are terminally ill, and that's it, and they can decide to do this. And yeah. now the door is opening to mental health and to children. Well, we've been told that never, 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 would we ever contemplate taking this to the place where we would be discussing euthanasia or uh, or um, powers of attorney, essentially medical powers of attorney, deciding to uh, kill a disabled person who can't speak for themselves or something? What would be the assurances that once this step is taken, that that's not the next logical step, and we're not then talking about having people who can't speak for themselves, but they're they're guardian makes that determination and we start seeing people who are disabled beings. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty important question. And at the moment, you know, we're very cautious about that. I don't think that they'll be in a hurry to um, allow proxy decision makers to make decisions in this case, in this case. Um, one thing we're clear about, and we've been clear for, for a long time, is that medical assistance in dying, euthanasia, whatever we want to call it, assisted suicide, always has to be because the individual has expressed an interest or has expressed a desire for this. Um, and you'd have to be very clear that this was a, you know, a capacitated individual, somebody who can make a choice for themselves, who has expressed that wish um, at some time. Um, so, and it, and it can't be for somebody else's interest. It always has to be for their best interests and for their um, needs. So, you know, we can't clear hospital wards by providing MAID. Yeah. That's just not the way that this can go. Um, we're pretty clear about that, and I, and I think it would be criminal to go any, you know, down that direction, um, at least where, you know, where it pertains to other people's interests. But when it takes place for an individual, um, it's important to, to recognize that in the new legislation or the broadening of MAID, one of the things they want to do is, is do an advance request option, um, which would give people the chance to make this choice when they had that capacity, clarify that choice, 
um, and then uh, have it enacted only at a later time when they no longer have that capacity to, to make the choice. And and this is important because we saw it just before Christmas, I guess, last year, um, a woman in Nova Scotia yes, who chose yes. to die early. She expressed that, you know, she was going to make this choice now because she was afraid that the suffering would become intolerable at a point where she also wouldn't have the, the capacity to, to give informed consent. And this is exactly a scenario that the justices were trying to avoid. You know, they wanted to give people the chance to live out their lives to the fullest extent. And so the advanced request option is what's on the, on the, the board now because um, it will give people the chance to do that. It is a fascinating topic. We'd love to have you back sometime because I know this is not going to go away. Dr. Lisa Schwartz, uh, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much. Yeah, and uh, tell people to go to the website and fill out the survey. It's important. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Alan Cross. Alan Cross is uh, hes not only a guy who runs a journal of musical things, he's not only probably the best music writer and commentator out there, but I will say this, and I'm not just saying this to suck up to him because it's absolutely true. The other day when Neil Peart died, I was watching a whole bunch of coverage of that and saw an interview with Alan Cross, and I'm telling you, there was no better, more succinct, more perfect explanation of why Neil Peart was special than Alan Cross did. So well done, sir. Well done. Oh, well, thank you. I, I've been a fan since I, uh, I heard Fly By Night for the first time when I was auditioning stereo speakers as a kid back in, in the 70s. And then I heard Bytor and the Snow Dog, and then I heard 2112, and that was it. I was a fan for life. But you know, Alan, and, and again, uh, we'll get to the other topic in a second, but uh, there were a lot of people who were fans who spoke about him the other day, and uh, it shows how much you know about your music that you were able to express it so perfectly. So again, um, anyone who needs to know about music, just go to Alan's website, um, and uh, I think that'll cover most of your bases. And in the meantime, we'll do it here. Um okay. 20 years ago or so, if you wanted to consume music, if you wanted to listen to music, if you wanted music of any kind, it was pretty simple. You went out and you bought a CD, uh, which of course followed the cassette era, which followed the record era. Uh, today, we don't seem to bother with such ridiculous things as paying for music. We seem to like the idea that we can hack in or download or stream or whatever else stuff that is free or find stuff that's free, Alan. And, and I don't know if it's a cultural thing that we've decided that we believe that we are entitled to free everything. Uh, but this seems to be a huge problem for the music industry. Yeah. Uh, streaming is here to stay. Anybody who thinks that it's a fad is, is deluding themselves. About 80% of music label revenues is are, deri- is are derived from streaming. That's how big it is. 80%. And if record labels could stop selling CDs tomorrow, they would get rid of all the manufacturing and the warehousing and the transportation and having to deal with record stores and collecting money. They would love to get rid of all that. So streaming is definitely where we're going. And uh, more and more people are adopting it because it's just so convenient. You basically have access to 60 million or so songs with a couple of taps on your phone or on your device, whatever the device may be. Uh, and you can get it for $9.99 a month, which is less than the price of some CDs. So for $120 a year, you have access to pretty much the entire 
history of human music. I mean, who wouldn't, you know, that, that's, that's science fiction. Uh, and you don't even have to pay if you want to put up for uh, with some, some commercials and some interruptions and you don't mind having not having all the functionality of a full-featured streaming service. Uh, you can get all these songs for free. And it's not illegal anymore to get stuff for free. It's just become so insanely convenient. But how then, if if free is the, the the word of the of our time, and I think it is because you look, you see people uh, tapping into stream and pirate. If you want to, you still use that word, movies or TV. Uh, with journalism, people don't really want to pay anymore because I can get stuff for free. And music is the same. If free is the recurring word, how do you possibly run an industry? Well, that's that's the problem, especially with something like a newspaper. Uh, the you know, we are getting used to paying for, for various subscriptions, but we're also getting subscription fatigue. I mean, how many accounts and how many passwords do you want to manage for all your media? So some people who got into streaming and accessing things, things these ways are just fed up with it. So they're looking for free ways to access all this, uh, all this stuff. It is very hard to, to run an industry. Uh, there will always be people gaming the system and trying to find ways to access content without paying. But going back to music, piracy is, is way down. There is an issue with something called stream ripping. That's where you go to YouTube and use a, a YouTube and you use a special piece of software that rips the audio out of a video uh, that runs on YouTube. You can also do that with uh, any number of programs. If you have, for example, your friends, Spotify password and you log in uh, and you can have you can you can rip streams of stuff off off Spotify uh, it, it, it's it's going to be there and and various industry organizations are, are trying to wipe this out uh, but you're always going to have a small um, segment of the population that's going to do that it's just so much trouble though I just I don't see the issue I don't see the point well, anyway, you say when it's nine ninety nine a month, and yet even at that, Alan, I, I mean, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, okay, I pay for my uh, Apple or iTunes or whatever you call it. I don't even know what it is. Apple Music. I pay for my nine ninety nine a month, and I frankly don't understand how anybody other than Apple is really making any. How are the artists getting by and making any kind of living off this or any kind of money? Because what are they getting? Like a fiftieth of a cent for every time someone streams it? I mean, it's, it's not like it was in the old days when you would literally go and tangibly buy their album and they made a portion of that. Yeah, they had a much bigger cut of the retail price. Uh, this is a big problem. Uh, streaming is very convenient. The record labels love it, but they're taking so much off the top that when the checks finally get to the artists, they're, they're pretty small. So we're dealing with hundreds of a cent per stream, uh, which is nowhere near enough to replace the kind of money that they would make from selling physical product. Something has to be done. Something has to break. There are too many streaming services. So maybe if the, we, see, we go through a period of consolidation, some of these rates will, will end up going up. Um, a big part of the problem, too, is that uh, almost none of the streaming music services are making any money because of the licensing restrictions placed on them by the record labels and the copyright holders and the rights holders. So the only people that seem to be getting rich off streaming are the labels and the publishers. Um, the streaming music services certainly aren't making any money. The artists aren't making any money. So where's it all going? To that middleman. 
Well, Rolling Stone magazine online had uh, has the question. They've asked the question right now, uh, asking where and attempting to answer where is the music business going in 2020 and beyond. I want to run a few of their ideas by you and get your thought on uh, whether this sounds like it makes any kind of sense at all. And the first one is, you know what, we are going to see different ways for the concert experience to be severely enhanced with technology in other ways that we are going, whether it's 3d concerts from your TV at home or movie theaters on the screens, you don't necessarily have to go to the theater or to the, to the concert hall. You will be able to see live music in some other ways. You see that as making sense? Yeah. Uh, I just came back from CES in Las Vegas and virtual reality and um, augmented reality are really, really big things coming down the pipe. So, there is going to be an attempt to um, make it much more user friendly for let's say you there's a there's a big festival like Glastonbury for example most famous music festival in the world I would love to see Glastonbury uh, performances but I have no interest in going to Glastonbury but if I could have a, a virtual reality experience where I could walk around the grounds at my own pace and see all the stages of, you know, just like a real person without having to be in the mud and the rain and everything. I, you know, I would do that. So that's the sort of thing that, that's going to come. We may not see something that sophisticated just yet, but we'll certainly be able to sit in our living room and say, you know, uh, Coldplay is playing in Chicago. Uh, and here is an opportunity for a latency free 360 degree, completely customizable view from the front row of a Coldplay show or from backstage at a Coldplay show or from the wings at a Coldplay show or wherever and experience that at home. It's still not going to be the same as being there because music is, is, a, is a collective experience, a community experience, but it will be a way to help fans uh, plug into shows that they otherwise might not be able to see. The other thing missing from that, and I've never been able to explain this, you probably can, if you go to a concert, there is, the, I don't care how good the sound system is at your TV at home or anywhere else, the, the way the drum, you can feel the music, it, like the, the drum like makes your liver bounce or whatever. Like it, it's a, I don't care, you, it, there seems to be no way to replicate the sound that you get when you're there live. No, no, and that's because you are experiencing analog uh, audio in real time. And uh, it, nothing sounds better than, than analog. It is real it is, uh, and we can get into the science of it about you know continuous sine waves versus step digital samples. But yeah, uh, live music will always sound better. One of the things Rolling Stone says is going to change, and I find this kind of fascinating and a little disturbing um, with some of the ideas they may come up with, but they describe the way the artist-fan relationship is going to drastically change. And here's their example. Um, if you splurge, for example, on a VIP package for a concert, if you want to go to that and really are willing to fork out, uh, maybe you'll get a haircut from the artist's personal barber or something. Like they're coming up with like crazy ideas where personal tweets or, or texts from the artist to you if you're willing to fork out enough for a concert seat and stuff. Could you see not only like that kind of stuff, but are, could the artists be put into a position where they are willing to do something? Now, maybe they wouldn't even do it. They'd have a team of people. So you'd never really know that Justin Bieber or Axl Rose or whomever was the one who hit text to you. But could you see them having to be getting involved in a person to person level like this to keep people intrigued? They already are. I mean, they're they're for, uh, you know, 50 bucks or a hundred bucks. 
there are some artists that will send you a personal video message. Uh, it's it's artists are always going to be looking for revenue streams to replace what was lost with physical sales. So, for example, I was at uh, David Lee Roth's show in Las Vegas last week, and the level of VIP access was almost unlimited. You you almost got to go home with Dave at the end of the night <laughs> if you wanted to pay that kind of money. So I, I had a, a ticket up on the balcony for for 130 bucks, but you know for for 750 dollars you could have had a table down front for you and a couple of friends and a bottle of Grey Goose vodka, and then after the show you got to go and hang hang out with Dave and do shots backstage. I mean, you know that's that's more and more we're seeing, and it's all about what the artist is willing to do. Uh, if you know, for example, if you go to a Metallica show and you're part of the Metallica family if of fans, the stuff they offer for VIP experience before the show is astounding. It's fantastic. There's food. There's museum exhibits. There's opportunities to, to meet every member of the band. It is a brilliant thing, and that, it, it, that creates such a level of bonding between Metallica and their fans that it's it's insane. I've seen it a couple of times. And the band is all in. You know, they realize that if they're going to continue to be famous, they have to overserve and superserve their fans, and that's exactly what they do. Other artists are, are going to be doing that uh, as long as they have the energy and the will. Can you see this? Because uh, right now, I mean, a lot of people will say a lot of concerts are very expensive. Even to get the cheap seats, it's very expensive. Can you see that gap expanding to say, okay, you know, we're going to make if we're playing a full arena, we're going to make three or 4,000 seats available for 50 bucks. So you know what? You can come and you can be there and it's not going to cost you 150 or 200 bucks, but then we'll, we'll get the people at the top end because we'll really gouge them. And there are some people who are willing to do that. Well, one of the things that live nation and Ticketmaster are saying that the ticket prices right now are too low. And that's because if you look on the secondary market, you'll see what people are willing to pay to get into yeah, the true. show. True. So, it, it, you know, when you look at a concert, um, you know, you're getting two and a half hours, let's say, of, of, of theatrical entertainment. You know, how much do you spend to go see a big theater production? How much do you spend to go to uh, to get a good seat at a baseball game or, or, or a Leafs game, for example? I mean, you're going to spend more than that. And and at the oh, so the you know you're right. the The question is the Leafs game. There's no such thing as a cheap ticket. At the Blue Jays, you could get a cheap ticket. Now there's a lot more seats there, but they will always make it so for twenty bucks you could get in. That's not always the case with a concert. And and, and look, the Leafs are as you say, the Leafs are the same thing that you are going to have to pay to get in. There is no cheap entry. Right. So you've only got forty one home games, and you've only for the Leafs, and you've only got eighty one for. Uh, for while well, you've got 81 for the for the Blue Jays, so there's a, a, a and you're playing in a big stadium with a popular, with a seating capacity of around 50 or 55 thousand. So it, it's it all comes down to inventory management. How many bums do you have to put in the seats? How well is the team doing? Which dictates uh, which dictates uh, ticket price and demand, and you just go from there. I mean, ticket pricing is very very dynamic, and we don't see it when you buy tickets at face value. We do see it on the secondary market. And here's a hint. If you do want to go to a hot show or a big game, always wait until about 48 hours before showtime or the puck drops or whatever. Because if you go on the secondary market, you will see what the true market value, in other words, the amount of money that the general public is willing to pay 
for a ticket, its true value, uh, during that 48-hour window. You know, I come back to the idea that it seems to me that there is a fair chunk of the population who believes somehow that music is part of your um, privilege and rights of living in North America or something, that, that you should be able to have free music just or almost free music just because, and I've always been fascinated by this because I'm reasonably sure that if the musician turned around, if you were a carpenter, let's say, or a plumber or whatever, and they said, well, I should have free plumbing, you would say, why? Why? You have to pay for that. Well, there are certain things in our society, it seems, that we are, we believe should just come to us just because, and I, I don't quite understand why. Yeah, this, this whole sense of entitlement. I am such a big fan. I have been following this group for my whole life. Nobody loves this band more than me, and I should be able to see them. Well, no, that's not how it works, because concert tickets, for example, are purchased with after-tax disposable discretionary income. Uh, heck, you know, I would like to be able to fly first class wherever I go around the world, but I can't because I can't afford it. So the only thing I can afford is sitting at the back of the bus. Uh, and even then, i got to be really careful because if the demand for that flight reaches a certain level, the prices are dynamically adjusted by the airline. So it maybe goes beyond my budget. This is the same sort of thing with concert tickets. If you didn't get a ticket at face value at the beginning, uh, then you run into trouble. And if artists and promoters and Ticketmaster decide that the tickets are priced too low because, you know, if they can sell this, these tickets for much greater than face value in the secondary market, well, then the promoter and the artist are leaving money on the table. So that should be their money, right? Because that's what people are coming to see. What ends up happening are the secondary market people are making extra, maybe double, triple, quadruple uh, what the artist is making. And that just seems to be wrong. It is. Uh, it's a fascinating thing how the music industry is going to figure out ways to keep artists. Because look, there's always going to be those at the very top. I suspect there's always going to be the super groups that are going to make their money from concerts and everything else. I. This is a discussion maybe for another day now, but I don't know how if you are a startup group that is you're looking for an investment by a record label and you're not a big deal. That, that's that to me is where the problem is going to land. Yeah, and it's only going to get worse. Right now we have a layer of superstars at the top a big gap of then struggling musicians at the bottom. And it is getting harder and harder and harder to be an emerging or let's call it middle-class musician because you can't fall back on record sales anymore. Alan Cross, uh, look up his website. It is fantastic as always. Uh, Alan, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Anytime. That is, uh, look, it, it's a problem because like we ha- we know that uh, the big concerts, they will charge and those bands will make their money. But if you're a middle band, a middling band, a smaller band, how do you, and you know, I know that many of us are probably thinking right now, well, why does it matter? Like, do we need them to be super wealthy so they can smash up their hotel rooms and drive limos and whatever? Like, okay, first of all, that's the old days for the most part. And second of all, I, I, I do think that if you create something that is popular enough and draws enough interest from people that they want to buy it, you should be rewarded for that. I don't think saying otherwise is either jealousy or dismissive or something else. If you, if someone creates something that you feel is worthy enough that you want to listen to it, why shouldn't you pay for it? 
What would be wrong with rewarding the person who did that work with something that says, I am willing to pay because you did good work and I want to use that or listen to it or enjoy it. But we seem to have a real trouble for many people anyway, with that idea, which leads to pirating and illegal streaming and all the rest. And, and as he said, as Alan said, it's, it's not going to get a whole lot better in 2020 and beyond when our technology makes it easier and easier and easier for us. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.